Hi, and welcome to the Hospital IQ Podcast. I'm Michael Krogman. With us today are Sean Sefton, our Vice President of Client Operations, Brian Dickerson, our Senior Director of Product Management for Workforce, and Sean Melvin, our Director of Product Management for Patient Flow. Sean Sefton, I'd like to start with you. You've been a nurse, you've been on the front lines. When you're in a hospital and you know a massive surge that's gonna put you at 150%, 200% of capacity, what does it look like in the hospital and what are the preparations that are being done? It's very, it's very interesting. We actually, we actually train for this. Um, and through many, many years, I've been doing this uh, for over 25 to 30 years. You know, I've even seen that, um, that preparation grow, um, especially um, with the advent of some of the, the things that we've seen even nationally uh, with, you know, uh, disasters or, um, you know, things that are happening that really impact the community. So there's a lot of preparation that goes on um, around, you know, setting up command centers, uh, doing triage, um, and making sure that there's readiness. I don't think we've seen uh, times like this. This is certainly unprecedented. You know, we've heard a lot in um, the news and even myself, who's still very much involved in healthcare, you know, the things that um, we really never really worried about around supply chain, um, around equipment, you know, we always would prepare for them. We would always make sure that we would have uh, them at the front lines. But I think it's really unprecedented right now what we're seeing with the surge because it's so nationally, well, actually globally based if we really want to think about it. So, you know, while the preparation has always been there, while we train for this very hard in, in organizations, I think, as everyone has said, this is really unprecedented. Sean Melvin, if a facility knows they're two weeks away from running over capacity, you're our expert in patient flow. What are they doing with the beds they have right now, patients in those beds? Um, are they looking to prioritize discharges? Are they looking to move people and group them in units? Um, what are they doing from a patient flow perspective? Yeah, I think there's, there's really a couple of responses that are happening now. There's, there's almost like the, you know, the quote unquote normal response that you would see in a, in a natural disaster, uh, which I'll get into in a second. Then you've got sort of some of the extraordinary measures that are being taken now. Uh, but you know, obviously right now you're seeing a lot of hospitals cancel their elective surgeries. Uh, that's going to have sort of a, a two-sided effect. One is it's really going to open up capacity inside a hospital. And the other, it's going to stop uh, the main revenue stream you know, for those hospitals or hospital systems. On the other side of the process, you're seeing a lot of action in, of course, as you mentioned, as patients being discharged. Uh, there are, there's the normal you know, work that's happening there every day. But there's a couple of pinch points there. One is you're seeing, you know, uh, post-acute care areas like skilled nursing facilities or rehab facilities, they're a little hesitant to take patients out of hospitals that are not confirmed COVID negative, which is a bit of an issue, but uh, some, some regulatory restrictions are helping out there. So CMS, for example, they've relaxed um, the 50-year-old the rule that a patient has to remain three days in inpatient care in order to even qualify for skilled nursing to sort of help, you know, get, get uh, lower acuity patients out of the four walls of the hospital in order to start to care for the surge that's coming. Another thing that's happening, and so that, those are almost the ordinary measures, you know, with the exception of the CMS rule relaxation, uh, where you're seeing extraordinary measures taking place is uh, hospitals are, are converting a lot of internal space into overflow areas. This also, by the way, um, is benefiting from, from some rules that CMS has sort of relaxed around overflow capacity, but you're gonna see um, post-anesthesia care areas, PACUs, cath labs, radiology areas, prep and discharge areas, anywhere in the hospital that can house a bed to house a patient, 
uh, all of these are now going to be opened up to what's essentially inpatient care. Brian Dickerson, as our Senior Director of Workforce, I know this is a passionate subject for you, but as a scheduler or an administrator, when you know in a couple of weeks you're basically going to need 100% of staff on hand, how do you prep for that? How do you get them rested? How do you not burn them out ahead of time? How do you manage your scheduling needs before the crush comes? If, if you think about this situation, there's a number of things that, that are happening and I think is, 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 is good. The first one is with some, you know, again, just like everything going on, CMS has lightened up on some rules and requirements. And, and so hospitals are getting prepared for what's coming in their way. But start with the, what Sean talked about with the elective surgeries stopping in most, or, most organizations and also uh, people not wanting to come to a hospital for fear that they're worst place to catch COVID-19. Most of our clients, if not all of them, have a really low census right now. So the staff are actually being sent home because they're not being needed. But what they've done to prepare is they've got plans in place to augment staffing from the units that are not uh, having a lot of activity right now. And they're gonna be able to use those staff in, in their critical care areas and use like a buddy system where you take uh, some nurses that maybe aren't as skilled in ICU and you buddy them up with a skilled ICU nurse and maximize the, the, that 20% that, uh, of the skills that only that ICU nurse can do and get those other nurses to do everything else. So there's a lot of prep going on there. There's a lot of cross-training trying to be done in a short period of time because the fear is we're going to run short of ICU nurses. It's not we're going to run short of all nurses, but we're definitely going to run short of ICU nurses. So how do, we, how do they deal with that? So I think there's a lot of, a lot of preparation going, in, going there. We've had a couple of decades of consolidation and acquisition. A lot of regions throughout the country have two, three, maybe four big health systems that cover the whole region. For any of you, are you expecting a level of collaboration among these hospitals as they try to deal with a regional issue? I think that you were already seeing some collaboration and we're seeing some collecting of information about resource availability across a region or a, a larger spectrum than just one healthcare organization because they need to understand if things go really bad, where can they draw resources from? Um, I think, you know, depending on where this goes, that may become even more and more important. If it's, you know, where New York is right now is, is really in a bad place. If the rest of the country gets it that severe, we're, we're going to see a lot more uh, cooperation across healthcare. We have no choice. I'll tack on to that also, Michael. So yeah, Brian's, Brian's 100% right. I think we're going to see a lot of, of collaboration even among, you know, competing hospital systems in the same markets. Uh, what happens in times like this, of course, this is unprecedented, but what happens in, you know, your, your average quote-unquote natural disaster is that, you know, incident response teams are going to spin up inside hospitals, and then, you know, local and state governments are going to start coordinating with each other. Uh, one of the problems there, of course, is visibility, needing to understand where all of those things are, to understand simply what's available right now, how many beds are available in, you know, general adult care and critical care. How many ventilators, how many respirators, how many PAPR suits and motors, things like that, they're going to be important for a pandemic like this. So, uh, you know, these agencies getting together, these hospital systems getting together and sharing information on what I think is going to be a pretty you know, unprecedented scale. Let's move ahead and assume we're in the middle of a peak. Um, Sean Sefton, again, having been a nurse in the past, what does it look like on the ground when a facility is at 50% of capacity and 
95% of the staff is on hand. It is a really, really, really um, tough situation. And I think the fear right now, frankly, is that it is not going to just be one or two days. This is going to be something that they're going to be dealing with at a very high surge, probably oversurged rate and have to sustain it. So imagine you know, all the, all of what, all that needs to go into that and all of the frontline practitioners that are going to have to be treating these patients and the lives that are going to be affected by it and affected many negatively. Uh, the Boston area and some of these other urban areas, you know, serve a population that has, you know, social determinants of health that are socio and economically challenged. And it's, you know, what are we doing with these folks that, you know, potentially are homeless or have many complicated, um, not only comorbidities physically, but also, you know, dependencies or behavioral health issues. And, you know, you start to put that all in the mix. And it really, for me, as I sit here and have the discussion, and as I'm doing more and more reading, I, it's unfathomable. And frankly, my answer, Michael, is I don't know what they're going to do. It is going to be a surge and a sustained surge that is going to challenge all of us in, in a way that we've never really been challenged. Sean, Melvin, and Brian, your products are designed to improve processes. And what we try to do as a company is we try to automate processes. We try to automate recommendations. We try to get hospitals off of their old-fashioned ways of using paper and physical rounding. But when we look at the news, we're seeing existing processes being just tossed aside in favor of whatever works. So hospitals are going to get away from process and just get to whatever works, works for a time. But what's the effect of that going to be when everybody's kind of just flying around doing whatever they can without any sort of standardized, centralized way of doing it? From the workforce standpoint, there's some extra work that has to be done to understand where there's possible resources that don't have the qualifications where they normally could work outside of their their home unit. And so how do you use those? And, and obviously that will, I'm sure that will come back that the qualifications will be reinstated. I think there will be some things though that maybe will be looked at from the standpoint of, you know, did we, we relax that and does it really need to come back? I also think that, and I've had conversations with clients where because some of these rules were relaxed, there was well-defined processes that dictated when you did something with a patient. Those got relaxed, and what it did is it, it created ambiguity where it actually is more difficult to move a patient around because everything revolves or involves a discussion to determine what to do, where before it was, this is a rule, this is what we do, done. So it's an interesting uh, dilemma where it actually is made, in some cases, things a little more difficult by having relaxed requirements. Yeah, and I, I think from the side of capacity, maybe a little more, I mean, I think Brian hit it on that. The, the, the system is going to change. I think it will change in a lot of positive ways. Brian mentioned telemedicine. Uh, that's something that's been almost like almost like a slow burn for a long time. And I think that's going to change potentially U.S. inpatient or even outpatient you know, hospital activity permanently. I think a couple of things we, we will see kind of from, you know, looking from, from my perspective, from an operations, from a patient flow standpoint, is that I think there's going to be a much greater desire for a unification of information. I think this pandemic is going to push the American health system into requiring that. We need to know at any given time, in a unified way, the state of a hospital system. And I won't even go beyond that to other agencies, but I, but I, I think that's a positive that will come from this. Another one, to borrow maybe a couple of military terms, I think there'll be 
a focus on operational readiness. I think there'll be a focus on situational awareness. I think that's just something that, that's, that's gonna come in the box over the next three to five years. We need to become more consumer friendly. We're like the last hold in the consumer world that's not consumer friendly. So it's going to be interesting and it's not the time to talk about this now because we're in the middle of it. But you know, what are we going to think about post all this and how are we gonna to start to really look at our healthcare delivery models? Let's move ahead to August. Now, I think most people, they're thinking ahead to August, they're just thinking about they can go outside again. They can go to bars and restaurants and go shopping again. That will be normal to them. By August, normal for hospitals might be still COVID patients, but 90% of capacity. When that gets back to normal for hospitals and they can get elective perioperative procedures back, Sean Sefton, what's that going to look like? I think what we're going to hear and see is 24-7. We have to remember that all the ambulatory or elective health care has really been put on hold. And we've discussed that a bit through our conversation here today. But we also need to recognize, and I think it was Sean Melvin who said this, the, the revenue that that um, business brings to these organizations, sometimes up to 60% of, of the revenue generated by an operating room really helps um, health organizations. So. I think what we're going to see is twofold. One is, you know, patient care. There are patients that need to have their surgery or their procedure done or their ambulatory care done. I think the other thing that has to be considered too is that if we deplete all these supplies, are we going to be poised and ready to start to do some of those procedures that's still going to be a lot of turmoil as we move into those months and trying to come back online? And Sean Melvin, I would imagine it's going to be critical to manage discharges and length of stay and avoiding excess days because you frankly won't want somebody who's into the hospital for something else to contract COVID-19, right? Yeah, so, so totally agree on that. Uh, one of the things that we're seeing thus far, and I, th I, think, I think the data is still unfolding, is that you know once COVID patients are hospitalized, they tend to be hospitalized for a longer than average amount of time. Those are going to be need to be managed, of course, very closely. But as you mentioned earlier, Michael, as those capacities start to come down, it, it may be 150 percent down to 120 or 110 percent. Once that starts to happen, it is going to be vitally important to manage the discharges of all patients, COVID or otherwise, really closely in order to allow for those elective surgeries and other surgeries. As Sean Sefton said, it's just going to be another factor in the future as we look into August, September, and beyond. Well, thanks, everyone. This was some really amazing stuff and really insightful and, and giving us a, a great perspective on this pandemic. For Sean Sefton, Brian Dickerson, and Sean Melvin, I'm Michael Krogman, and this has been the Hospital IQ Podcast.